0: Please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 84. I was listening to one of the video messages that Pastor Ed at North Shore had recently sent out, and I like how he specified: please take out your paper Bibles. I would strongly encourage you to do that as well. Uh, you've got enough distractions as it is already watching this on Facebook. Uh, close the chat. I appreciate the hearts and the thumbs up and the smiley faces. Set all that aside, open a book the book, uh, because that's what God has given us. And thus, as uh, as a minister, that's what I am called to give to you. Uh, This has been a trying time for everyone. It has been a far more trying time for most than it has been for me. We're we're healthy and well. We, We like being home. We've been blessed by the church with plenty of space. We're all right. But it has been a challenge at times to figure out how to shepherd and how to pastor well in the midst of all this. And I was again this week, as I often have been, both rebuked and encouraged by the reading of the letters of John Newton. Here's what he writes in a letter titled, Christ All Sufficient. He's writing this to a friend of his whose sister is suffering and very sick. Newton writes, How often have I longed to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel, and I have but one way of attempting it, by telling you over and over and over of the power and grace of Jesus. That was rebuking to me and encouraging. I very much long to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel. I want to shepherd you well. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be comforted. I want you to be at peace. But I cannot see you. We cannot gather together. So how can I do that? Oh yeah, right. in the exact same way I always have. In the only way I have of doing any of that. By telling you over and over and over again of the power and grace Of Jesus Christ. And I do that by ministering to you God's Word. I point you to Christ by pointing you to His Word. His Word, which is all about the power and grace of Jesus. Even Psalm 84. And I'm going to argue, especially Psalm 84. Uh, Charles Spurgeon calls Psalm 84 the pearl. Of Psalms. He goes on, if the 23rd be the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most deeply experimental, the 51st the most plaintive, that means sad or mournful, then this, 84, is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of Peace. I desperately want you to know peace in this time of panic, and so we turn now to one of the most sweet Psalms of Peace. Why is it so sweet? And peaceful. Well, let's, let's see. But I want to start this time with a question. You can answer out loud because I won't hear you. What is it, be thinking about this, what is it that you most desire right now? What do you find yourself longing for these days? We've been stuck in homes for weeks now with no ends in sight. Maybe you're going a little stir-crazy. Maybe you're desperate to be around people. Or maybe some of you are desperate not to be around the people that you are currently stuck being around. But what is it that you desire right now? Uh, We are going to indulge in our favorite dessert uh, in this whole city. Chip cookies later this week. Then they closed on Monday. Uh, There are no sports I've been surprisingly fine with no support, no sports, that's encouraging. I can live without sports. That is evidence of sanctification and growth because I'm not sure that would have been the case not too long ago. I still hope maybe for some sort of NBA playoffs or at least back on track for the football season. But I haven't missed sports as much as I thought. Uh, I do miss my two-day prime shipping, I don't like waiting for books, I do miss the gym. Uh, all those are pretty silly, though. I would like all of those things to come back. but. None of that really, really matters. So what am I, or what should I be really longing for right now? And what about you? What are you really longing for right now? What do you crave? What are you hungry for? What do you desire? As I read Psalm 84 for you in the moment, in a moment, I want you to pay attention to the tone of the psalm. What does Psalm 84 feel like? But I think it cannot be argued that it feels like longing. And it is a longing for the Lord. And I want to make sure from the outset that He is our focus this morning, because it can be easy with the Psalms, especially one like this, to make it all about us, to make it our, to make the focus our experience, our needs. Again, that's not unimportant, but that's secondary. My desire is not to direct you to yourself, but to direct you to the Lord. And that's the desire of this psalm as well. Notice how it opens and closes. Verse 1, o Lord, that's Yahweh. O Lord Yahweh of hosts." Verse 12, "O Lord Yahweh of hosts." Same thing, beginning and end. That's an inclusio, that's a sandwich, that's a literary device to focus us and help us understand the main point of the psalm. This psalmist is entirely focused on the Lord, this Lord of hosts. We don't use that word much anymore, but it's literally armies, right? He is the commander, he's the general, he's the king of all the armies. He has all the strength, he has all the power, he has all the authority. And he is the focus of this psalm, and he is the desire of the psalmist. And he, thus, then, is the longing of the heart of all of God's people. And I want us to focus on that longing language. Lots of people say they believe in God. Lots of people say they love God. But as C.S. Lewis points out in his commentary on the Psalms, these terms are so familiar that for many of us, they've just been emptied of meaning. So he prefers to talk about an appetite for God. That's unique. It's a bit jarring. I I like that. Do you have an appetite for God, a hunger and a desire for him, uh, for his presence? Because that is simply what it means to be a Christian. Eternal life is knowing God in the fullest sense of that word. We saw it in Philippians 3, that for Paul, knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, was of surpassing worth. And so Paul was willing to count everything else as loss, only to be found in him and to know him. That's the kind of appetite, the longing that we're talking about. The godly long to be with God. They long for the presence of God. And the godly understand also that there is a special and unique way in which God is present among his gathered people. And the godly understand that there's a necessary condition, something that must be done first for God to be present with and among his sinful people. People. So three points for you this morning. Uh, first, we're going to see that Christians long for the presence of God. Second, we're going to see, though, that Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the people of God. So Christians don't just long for God. They also long for the people of God. But then third, we're going to see that Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the Messiah of God. Let's read, and we'll begin to walk through it. I've been noticing, that I've been looking around, I think a lot of pastors have taken the tact of, hey, what's online, let's, let's have shorter sermons. Ah, I'm not taking that approach. Um, so you can pause me if you need to. You can come back uh, later, um, because you've got time. So I'm going to give you God's word for as much as I can. Um, let's, let's read the psalm. Remember, it's a psalm of longing. It's a psalm of peace. Uh, let's read, and let's pray that we would be comforted by God's Word. Let's read, and Lord willing, let's be confronted with the presence of God himself mediated through his word. So I hope you have it open there. Psalm chapter 84. I will read it for you. This is what God wants to say to you today. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you would bow with me, let's begin first uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We are thankful for the great blessing that it is that we can still uh, preach and proclaim your word and we can send it out to our people who are providentially hindered from being here. So I pray that while we are sad that we cannot be together, I pray that we would be still edified and encouraged by your word. Father, help my brothers and sisters who are home, who are looking at a screen, who are kids running around, who have various distractions, I pray that you would help them to set those things aside uh, for the next few minutes and focus not first on me, but focus on you and focus on your word. Um, Father, we have been tempted to be distracted by so many things. We are tempted to set our minds on the fears and, and the circumstances that surround us. We have tempted to set our minds on social media and Netflix. Father, help us now, please, to set our minds on you, to set our minds on the things of the Lord. Uh, and I pray that you would help me, Lord. I am in desperate need of your help as I preach and proclaim your word. Father, encourage your saints now, I ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, point number one. Christians long for the presence of God. First, think with me for a second about who is speaking here. It's interesting uh, about, I mean, who's the author of this psalm? There's a bit of a debate. That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. The easiest answer, just from the heading, is that it was written by the sons of Korah. That seems to be what it says. Uh, The sons of Korah, they were a family of Levites. Uh, They were most famous for the rebellion against Moses, led by the father, Korah, back in Numbers 16. You can go read about that. In Numbers 26, thankfully, we find that some of his sons were spared the judgment that God passed on Korah and his family. And so we then find later that they ended up playing a role in the temple, some of them as singers and musicians. So maybe it's just they who wrote the psalm. That's probably the easiest answer. I cannot prove this, but many, especially those in the past, have argued that though it says a psalm of the sons of Korah, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they wrote the psalm. They could be the singers of the psalm. It could have been given to them or entrusted to them. So who then wrote it? Well, many argue that it just must have been David. I don't know this. I can't prove this, but man, it just sure sounds like David, doesn't it? And keep keep that in mind as we work through this. I think it's interesting. What if it's David who is writing this psalm? That could be a factor as we move on through it later in the end. But look first. Let's let's look at verse one. Let's start at the beginning. He starts off how lovely. And so right away we see this is this is beautiful language. This is this is a love song, a love poetry. Literally, that translates how how dear or how beloved. And what is it that is so lovely? Or well, it's this. Dwelling place, God's dwelling place, the the dwelling place of Yahweh of armies. And if you're reading in the King James, you'll notice that it says how lovely or how amiable are your tabernacles. Because that's what the word is. Uh, the Hebrew word here is simply the word for tabernacle. And since we don't know who exactly wrote the psalm or when exactly it was written, it's hard to know whether he's literally talking about the tabernacle, the, the tent, or if he's referring to the temple simply through the use of the term tabernacle. If it's David, this has to be about the tabernacle because the temple wasn't built until after his death. But either way, it doesn't really matter because the tabernacle and the temple served the same purpose, which was what? What what were they? Well, they were the special place of the presence of God. They were where you went to meet God. With God, to be with God. And so he's not necessarily just really longing for some building, he's longing for what that building represents. He's longing for what the building mediates the very presence of God Himself. And so look at verse 2. Pay attention to the parallelism between lines 1 and 2 and then lines 3 and 4. We've had dwelling place in verse 1. Here's the longing. This is very strong language. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Why courts? What does he really mean? Well, the third and fourth line develop and explain what he means. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And it is God first that he desperately longs for. He mentions the courts because that is where you went to be in the presence of God. That is where God was. And whoever wrote these psalms, it is clear that there is some sort of connection between this psalm and the one that we read earlier in the service, Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43 are really one psalm they, they go together but listen again to the beginning of psalm 42 verse 1 and 2 notice how similar these sound to psalm 84 as a deer pants for flowing streams so my soul pants for you O god my soul thirsts for the living god now, tell me honestly do you have any experience of that at all do you believe in God? Yes, good. That's important. Do you love God? Okay, yes, good. That's important. But I want to try and get behind some of those words we use so often. Do you have any sort of sense or experience of what Lewis calls an appetite for God? Of what the psalmist here calls a soul panting, soul thirsting, longing for God. Hey, consider the metaphor that he's employing here. A deer panting. For water, Think about what happens if a deer does not get that longed-for water at some point. At some point, it will die, because water is life. In the same way, the psalmist is saying that his soul thirsts for the living God. That's the same as Psalm 84, because God himself is life. He is the water of the soul. The soul without God is dead. And so the psalmist understands that. And so he longs for that which gives life. He longs for that which is life. He longs for the living God. He longs for the presence of God. We did Psalm 16 a few weeks ago. In verse 11, we read there that it was, In your presence there is fullness of joy. do Do you believe that? Do you believe that all the life you need... And there's this, this fullness of joy that is to be found in God himself. And I wonder how many of you are struggling right now and how many of us are using our time right now. How maybe the struggle and the use of time, maybe that could betray to some degree the fact that we don't necessarily believe this. I wish there was some way to do a study of the correlation between social media and Netflix use and spiritual health and vitality. Right? Spiritual life and joy. I would wager that those things are somewhat inversely related. Right? As one rises, the other falls. And as the other rises, the other falls. Again, I, I cannot prove that, but I, that's my assumption that there's a relationship there. Are you stuck at home, unable to leave? Are you able to find great life? And fullness of joy in the presence of God. In in spending time with Him, in hearing from Him through His Word, in talking to Him in prayer, in in resting in His plan and His promise for your life that includes this quarantine, it includes whatever it is that you're experiencing right now. Now, we should all of us be taking a regular stock of how this quarantine is affecting us spiritually. How's your soul? doing remind remind yourself in christ you are never alone right you are knowing um, are you knowing and are you further longing for the presence of this lord that is life and that is joy and that we can find great hope and satisfaction in regardless of our circumstances what is your experience of god right now and the presence of god because listen That's the whole point of everything. That is meant to be the whole point of your life. And it's arguably the main theme running through the whole of Scripture. You think about it. We go back to the beginning. We've talked about this a bunch, so I'll try not to belabor the point. But the story begins with God. In the beginning, God. And we see that he is the God who is, who exists. And then he is the God who speaks. And in speaking, he creates Everything. He start off, starts off by creating a place, but then the pinnacle of his work is the creation of man. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. And so now we have a people. There's a king, there's a place, and there's a people. And again, that's, that's a kingdom. And in that place, we see that God is with his people in a special, intimate, immediate, unmediated, way. God has created a people for himself to be in relationship with them, to be in fellowship with them, to be present with them. But Genesis 3, we know things quickly go wrong. The people reject the king. They disobey God. They rebel against him. They reject relationship with him. They break his good and gracious Law, remember, every relationship has to have law. But since he is a perfectly good and holy king, he must also be just. He must deal with sin. It must be punished. He had warned them the wages of sin is death. Right? You reject the God of life, and death is the result. And so at the end of Genesis 3, we see God's people are cast out of God's place and are ultimately then cast out of the presence of God, Remember, that's the point of the place. It's where God is. It's home. It's what we were made for. And the whole rest of the story is about God graciously leaping into action to right our wrong, to fix the problem that we created, to do something about our sin that separates us from Him, to make it possible once again for God to be present with His people. We'll get more on that in point number three. But the point I want you to see is that the presence of God is not something incidental to the story. Right? It is the story. He is the living God. He created us in his image and likeness. He created us like him to be with him, to live in him. John seventeen three. eternal life is knowing God. Right? It's, it's being God. With him. This is what life is all about. And this is what God is doing. This is the point of the gospel. This is what he is working toward restoring his presence among his people. And so, you don't hear me wrong. When I'm talking about the presence of God, I'm not talking about some mystical feeling. I'm not talking about some strange emotional charge. People talk strangely about like a God feeling and feeling God's presence. But you'll notice that it's always when they feel good. Uh, that's a problem. If we have some special God feeling, and it's always a good feeling, uh, you know, the lights have been lowered, uh, the music is is setting, the music is setting just the right manipulative mood, you know, the pastor's starting to wrap up, he's making his final emotional pleas, and then the piano starts to play behind his words, giving them that extra just kind of guilty, nice mood set. It all feels so good. But, what about when you feel bad? Does that mean that God is not present then? Of course not. I praise God that he is just as present when I feel bad. Uh, so don't make the mistake of equating the presence of God with some sort of sensory feeling, especially some like positive, encouraging, K-lovey Feeling. Now again, this, what I'm talking about here is not some mystical feeling, I'm talking about a, a fact, I'm talking about a reality, I'm talking about a spiritual truth, something that is not accessed by, independent upon some feeling, but upon faith. It is by faith, faith, faith. Again, more on that in a moment. But do you have any sort of longing for the presence of God? of this knowledge of him, of is faith and knowing deep down in, in your heart and in your soul that God is with you and that God is for you and that God is working all things together for your good and your circumstances. Don't affect that. Do you long for the presence of God? Because it is the nature of the Christian to long for the presence of God. And so that's how the psalm begins. Longing fainting, singing for joy. Or in the King James, probably a little bit better, maybe not really a joy word there. It just simply means to, to cry out. It's, it's a cry of longing. It's a cry of desperation to, or maybe for, the living God. And so I hope that that is ultimately your answer to the longing question that we began with. Whether right? You are longing for God himself and for his presence. But... I actually hope that that is not your only answer to the longing question. Because, point number two, Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the people of God. And you know, I don't want you to miss this. This is why we're doing this psalm this day. Let's notice again how he puts this. Notice the language that he's using in this psalm. Look at, look, look at verse one again. I'll run through this. Notice how place... How important place is here. Verse 1, dwelling place. Verse 2, courts. Verse 3, altars. Verse 4, house. Skip down to verse 7, Zion, Jerusalem. That's a place. Verse 10, courts again and house again. So he's not just longing for God. He's also longing to be in a specific place. And it's the same thing in Psalm 42. If you want to flip to Psalm 42 again, just to your left a couple of pages. It's more explicit there. So I'm going to draw it out of there and then we'll come back to Psalm 84. I mentioned in the church email a couple of weeks ago that I think we almost entirely misread Psalm 42. Now, when I read it a minute ago, I didn't read the last line of verse 2 because we pay a lot of attention to the first couple of lines, but we almost entirely ignore The last line. So we know this part, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. It's it's, it's beautiful. It's, It's longing. It's poetic. It's evocative. But I think we tend to read this entirely individualistically, as if it is and only is about our personal relationship with the Lord. But don't miss the last line. When shall I come and appear before God. Wait, hold on, What, what, what does that mean? Why is he concerned about being in some specific place to appear before God if this verse is all about his personal relationship with the Lord? Oh, he tells us. In verse three, we see that he is sad. Why? Verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. We see later in verse 6 that he's stuck up in the northern part of Israel, meaning he is away from Jerusalem. He's away from the place of God's presence. But not only that, when he remembers, when he longs, he longs for and remembers the throngs. But the multitudes, he longs for and remembers the people, being with the people, worshiping God with the people of God. He is sad because he is isolated. He is quarantined. He is social distanced. He is sad because he is unable to gather with God's people to worship God. And that is what he is longing for. And I think that that's ultimately what he is longing for in, in chapter 84 as well. Here's why, again, dwelling plates, courts, house. Why? Because, yes, that's where God is. Remember, the verse 1 is literally the tabernacle. And if you were to go back to Exodus and read the very detailed account of the, the end of Exodus, you would notice it, there's a lot of parallels there with the garden. Because the garden originally was the special place of God's presence. And so the tabernacle is that same thing. Our sin separated us from the presence of God right away. God got to work restoring the possibility of his presence. And that's what the tabernacle is about. And remember all that we've been looking at in Genesis 12 and 15. That's what the covenants are about. Keep in mind, the thing that's in the center of the tabernacle, what is it? It is the Ark of the Covenant. What's the covenant formula? I hope you know it by now. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Remember Genesis 15. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. It's about to come up again. Your reward shall be very great. Or as we saw, probably better translated as, I am your very great Reward. The reward is God Himself. The reward is the restoration of relationship. The reward is the presence of God once again with His people. That's what covenant is all about. God with us. And so that's what the tabernacle was all about as well. And as you read, we love the first half of Exodus, right? All the plagues and all the great stories and the parting of the sea, and it's really great. But then we generally stop after about chapter. Twenty, Because there's all these details and, and descriptions and directions about this tabernacle. When you start to wonder, what's, what's the deal here? Why, why all this meticulous direction and detail? But when you get to the end of the book and you press through, it ends with chapter 40, uh, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because they because um, the Lord the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the tabernacle. God has come. God is there. God is present. And, and that's why the psalm is so longing for the tabernacle. And again, the temple is the same thing because the exact same thing happens at the dedication of the temple. 2 Kings 8, verse 10, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It's the presence of God. That's why the temple was the center of Everything. To the Jewish people. It's where God was. And that's where God's people want to be. And that explains verse 3. He's away from the house of God. So he's envious of anything. Even birds that get to be at the house of God. Even a sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts. My king and my God. But look at verse 4. He keeps going. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Think about that saying, who gets to dwell in God's house? Who actually gets to go into the temple and the tabernacle? Remember, these things were not like the church building. You didn't get to go inside either of them. Only the priest's Did This verse is about the blessedness of being a priest of God in the place of God. Ultimately, it was only the priest who truly got to enter into God's presence. But we know that when we get to the New Testament, everything changes. This is what I've been somewhat unsuccessfully trying to drive at. The temple was the special place of God's presence. The priests were the ones who got to minister in and serve in the special place of God's presence. You had to go to a specific place to be near the presence of God. You had to be a specific person to be in the presence of God. But then you get to the New Testament. And you start reading things that sound a little bit strange. You start reading things like John 4 in response to an argument between the Jews and the Samaritans over where the place where God was to be worshipped. Verse 23 says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Okay, that's a bit different. How? Why? We read in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Peter calls us Christians, all of us, priests. Those are the only ones who could enter into the place of God's presence. Peter says, you are now all priests. Not only that, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you, Christian, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We just read Exodus and 1 Kings, how God filled the temple with his glory, his cloud of glory. And now here Paul says that God does the same thing with his people, filling them, being present not only with, but in them. And so all of a sudden, in New Testament, we start to see that God is now no longer especially present in a place, but in a people. But the point is that I'm, I'm trying to make is that while, yes, God personally takes up residence and dwells in each individual Christian, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's amazing. Right? When you are in Christ, when God's spirit comes in and, and takes your dead heart and brings it back to life and makes you new in a very real sense, God dwells in and with you, makes his home With you. And so, while yes, that is gloriously true, when Paul writes that you are a temple in 1 Corinthians, that you is plural. It's the same in Ephesians chapter 2, where he uses the same metaphor. He says, We are members of the household of God. Verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see how corporate all of that was? Together twice? Ultimately, in the New Testament, it is the church Together, that is the dwelling place for God. And so, yes, God no longer dwells in a place. He dwells in a people, but that is a people I don't want us to miss that is together. And I want us to get this because we are right now not able to be together. And so while, yes, I hope that you are longing for God and longing for the presence of God, I hope you are able to find great life and joy in him, even while stuck at home. I also, hope that you are experiencing satisfaction, great satisfaction in the Lord. But I also hope you are experiencing some degree of sadness because of this. I'm speaking to an empty Room, Because you are, none of you, here. And that is sad. As Christians should be sad about that. Because while yes, praise God, he is present with us always. He will never leave you nor forsake you, for you are with me. Where shall I go from your presence? He is the very present help in time of trouble. The upright shall dwell in his presence. Yes, yes, and amen. Praise God. But... God is also present in a unique way among his church, gathered together with one another, with him, for the purpose of worshiping him. And so Spurgeon, when he introduces, he preached like five sermons on this psalm, so you're lucky I'm only doing one. But in one of his openings uh, to one of his sermons on this psalm, he, he thinks David wrote this. He writes, when David was far away from the services of the tabernacle, he envied the birds that had built their nests near the sacred shrine. And Christians, in like manner, when they are debarred from the holy associations of Christian fellowship and united worship, always sigh over the lost privilege of meeting with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell me, are you, are you sighing? Are you sad? Are you sad? over the lost privilege of meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Man, I can honor, I am. And if you are, listen, that's a good thing, actually. And that's a good sign. Yes, Christians long for the presence of God, but they also understand that there is a special way in which God is present with and in his people, gathered together for corporate worship. And so Christians also long to be present with God's people that is why this whole thing in part has just further convinced me that you 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 cannot be a christian and choose not to gather with other christians and i'm not talking about those who long to but are providentially hindered i'm not talking about our circumstances right now i'm talking about those who claim to be christians but choose not to gather with god's people the people who claim to love christ but have nothing to do with his bride with his church. No, I'm just further convinced that that is not possible. You do not know the Lord. You do not know God if you do not have a longing and a great, passionate love for God's people. Christians have an appetite for other Christians. God loves his people. Look at what God has done to be with his people again. Therefore, those who love God will also then passionately love his people and long to be with them. The Christian life is life together. So, praise God for Facebook. Never thought that I would say that. Praise God for Zoom. Praise God for FaceTime. Let's be thankful for those. Let's use those. But let's make sure we never quite get comfortable with those. Let's make sure we never start to believe uh, that those uh, can replace the church. God's people gathered together to worship God together. Are you longing for that today? Are you experiencing any sense of loss (laughs) right now as we are unable to gather together as God's people. I, man, I am. I, I miss worshiping God together with you. I miss being surrounded by your voices raised in worship to God. I miss seeing your faces and, and the silent back and forth and give and take that is an important part of preaching to God's Word. I really don't like preaching at Menzies' camera right now. It's awkward. It's weird. I don't know what I'm doing. I need you guys. I cannot preach as well without you because God's Word is meant to be proclaimed in and among His people together. Christians long to be with other Christians because God mediates His presence in a special and unique way through his people gathered together. I miss that. And I long for that. Pray that that will be restored soon. And I'm praying that you would long for that as well. And finally, point number three. Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the Messiah of God. We we skipped over a lot of important stuff. Uh, I know, There's, there's just too much. Um, I think, since we all have extra time, that I should get to preach for three hours, Um, but I'm trying to be reasonable here. Um, So I'm going to miss some things. Um, I hope you've noticed that I've been using the word mediated a lot. I've been using that word on purpose. Remember in the garden, God's presence with his people was unhindered and immediate. Uh, But remember the problem of Genesis 3. God's people cast out of his presence because of sin. Our sin separates us from him. This is important. All the craziness and all the, the Pentecostal and the charismatic things and all the mysticism, all of that misses this important point. You'll find that there's always a focus on inwardness and there's always a focus on immediate and there's this claim that all of a sudden there can be an unmediated presence of God. Um, that's where they start to go really, really wrong. But because of our sin, because of the gap between us and God now, God's presence always must be mediated to his people in some way because of who he is and who we are. That's a major thing that we cannot miss. Our sin separates us. So how all of a sudden did we get to all that we just read in the previous point of God making his home with us? of Christians being his priests and temple, of his perfect and holy presence being mediated through his imperfect and sinful people. How does that work? The wages of sin is death. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. God is not. He is perfectly pure and holy. He cannot abide and allow sin. Something must be done about the sin that separates, the sin that brings death, and that something is God's Messiah. Look at verse verse 9. I just realized I skipped a lot of importance. I was reading the psalm, and I realized I didn't even get to some of the verses that I wanted to cover. But just forgive me and read it yourself. Look at verse 9. What is this about? Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. What does that mean? Notice that he is not there calling God our shield. He will do that in verse 11. But in verse 9, he's not. He is speaking to God and is praying to God and saying, God, you, you, God, behold, you look at our shield, something or someone other than, the, than, than God himself. Well, so who is it? Well, he tells us, look, there's the look again, behold, look on the face of your anointed. And what's that word anointed in the Hebrew? It's Messiah. Right? Messiah simply means the anointed one. And so Calvin writes on this verse, you know, also assuming the psalmist is David, Calvin writes knowing however that his kingdom, David's kingdom was merely a shadow and type of something more illustrious. There is no doubt that in uttering these words, the object which he aspired after was to obtain the divine favor through the intervention of the mediator of whom he was but a type. We are thus taught here that the only way in which God becomes reconciled to us is through the mediation of Christ, whose presence scatters and dissipates all the dark clouds of our sins. You see, the king was anointed, he was set apart, he was the protector of the people, he was the shield of the people, and he was the representative of the people before God. We might talk about this when we get to Genesis 17, but we're going to see that eventually it becomes, as the king goes, so goes The people, because God always works through representatives. So whether this is a call for God to look to David or whoever the king was at that time, we know that ultimately it must point us forward to the anointed one, the king who was also prophet and priest. And so the call is not for God to look to us. Please know God. Do not look to me. Do not look to my righteousness. Look to my Messiah. Look to my representative, look to my mediator. God mediates his holy presence to his sinful people through his perfect mediator, his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when we're introduced to him in John chapter one, we read in verse 14 and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And that's the same word used in the Greek translation of Psalm 84-1. That's the word tabernacle. This is why Jesus is Emmanuel. Remember, presence, what's the covenant about? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He is the temple. He is literally God present with his people. And so he says in the next chapter in John 2, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They're confused. What? It took 46 years to build this temple. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, we the church are the temple of God because Christ was first the temple of God. God can be with and in us because he first was Christ. Christ come to be destroyed. Christ come to be torn down. Why? To solve that sin problem. To solve that which separates us from God. To take on that sin and die the death it deserved so that we could be restored to God. He is our shield. Remember a couple of weeks ago, a shield is a, a substitute. Jesus has shielded us from the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins. And that is how God can be with us and in us. Only because Christ was torn down um, and the wall was thus torn down. The curtain, the separation has been bridged only because he has died our death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. That is what God is up to from beginning to end. He is restoring the possibility of his presence with his people. And he first had to deal with the sin of his people. And he dealt with the sin of his people through the death of his son. Our mediator, God with us. That's Jesus Christ. That's who this ultimately points us forward to. God's presence has to be mediated to his sinful people. It's mediated uh, through his people gathered corporately together in a special way. But for that at all to be possible, it first has to be mediated through his mediator, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you long for him? God cannot be with you until you are in Christ. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Him. And listen these days, are you concerned at all about your soul? Is that what anyone is concerned about right now? Listen to Martin Lloyd Jones in his sermon on Psalm 84. He' written like 60 years ago. I found this particularly timely for our current situation. He writes, "The ultimate secret of every godly Christian, the real secret of this psalmist, as he puts it so plainly here is that he has come at last to realize that the most priceless thing in his life is his soul. The soul within me goes on for all eternity. God has put it into me. God breathed it into man so that he became a living soul. That is what stamps men and women as being made in the image of God. My soul is the most precious thing of all. That is what I want to and must safeguard and protect. Amen. Uh, Let's not forget that right now. When we are, all of us, rightly, we're rightly concerned with protecting our bodies. We should be concerned about that. God gave us bodies. They are good. They are who we are. Physical is good. Creation is good. But it doesn't seem like we are much at risk right now of forgetting the goodness of the body and the necessity of caring for the physical. Everyone is aware of and concerned about that. Right now, again, that's, that's not bad. So yes, love your neighbor. Uh, do that by social distancing. Let's protect the older and compromised among us. Let's make sure that people are fed and cared for and provided for. We must do that. But we must not forget that according to Martin Lloyd-Jones and Scripture, the soul is the most precious thing of all and of infinite value. And it is only the good news of the gospel The good news that we, the church, have been given and charged with speaking that is the cure for the sin-sick soul. Thus, it is how we best minister to and care for people in this time. Be concerned for your health, but are you concerned at all right now for your spiritual health? Be safe, but is your soul safe in Jesus? Have you repented and believe. And if you have, praise God, take comfort, then God is for you, and God is with you, and nothing can change that. And how could, we, how could we doubt and distrust him? How could we ever worry? Do you see what he's been doing from the very beginning? He created you for him, and he is good. He is life. Life with him is the ultimate good. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. That's what he made you for. But you did everything you possibly could not to be with him. You rejected and rebelled against him, and yet... He ran after you. He sent his own son to die instead of you so that you could be redeemed and restored to him. Do you understand the lengths that he has gone to save your soul? Brothers and sisters, there is great joy to be found there. There's great comfort to be found there. There is eternal security to be found there. And that's why, verse 10, one day in his courts, one day with God is better than a thousand anywhere else. 4 verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He is life and light. He is safety and protection. And he gives, as the King James better puts it, he gives grace and glory. Man, do you believe that last part? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that right now? even in the midst of coronavirus, even in the midst of quarantine. uh, Listen, circumstances do not change God's promises. He is good, and no good thing does he withhold from his children. Are you prepared to let God determine what is a good thing for you? Are you, or are you going to continue to demand good things as defined by you? Be comforted and encouraged, maybe rebuked, by Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has. He already has in Christ. So to love him. Long for him. His goodness is not determined by your circumstances, but by the cross. And his goodness is infinitely displayed there. And so, brothers and sisters, in him, you are infinitely blessed. It's three times in that psalm, verse 4, 5, and 12. Blessed, 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 blessed with God himself. So long for him. And long for him in part by longing to once again be able to worship him together uh, with his people. Verse 12, trust him because he has given you his Son. And that's why this is the pearl of the psalms. That's why this is a psalm of great peace because it ultimately points us forward to the one who is himself our peace, Jesus Christ, even today, right, That doesn't change, no matter how bad it gets because in Christ, our soul is safe and secure and there is nothing more precious and there is nothing more important than that. Brothers and sisters, love him and long for him because of what he has done for you in Christ. Let me close this time now with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would now do your will uh, through your word. Uh, Father, I am very aware of the impossibility of the task before me on my own. And so I ask desperately again, um, that you, by your spirit, would, would work in your word, through your word in some way, to minister to your people who are hearing my voice right now. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it does not return to you void. I thank you that it is breathed out by you yourself, able to make us wise for salvation. Father, do your work now through your word. Father, help us, we ask. Help us to long for you and love you. Help us to long for the day when we can be back together in your presence, together, uh, worshiping you. Father, help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.